Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are starting a new series in the prophets. Today, we'll be discussing what a prophet is and does and how they function in the scriptures. And then next week, we will dive into the book of Jonah to be followed soon with the book of Daniel. As always, we do encourage you to check out those show notes below. Specifically, you'll find there a link to our YouTube channel. We'd love for you to subscribe and hit the bell over there. We are currently wrapping up an ongoing series walking through the book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart that we think you'll find very useful. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing the role of the prophet. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording, and he'll be editing and, uh, and delivering it to you. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we are at the beginning of a new series of podcasts. We have been doing a short series on the imprecatory Psalms. Uh, we're very grateful to Trevor Lawrence for coming in and joining us for that. Uh, and I thought that was a, a very successful discussion of a controversial topic, but one I think is relevant to the church's life today. Uh, what we want to do in the next uh, couple of months is spend some time in the Old Testament prophets. And we want to do that in a few stages. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about prophecy in general, the phenomenon of prophecy, how it fits into the overall biblical scheme and the sequence of Old Testament events, what prophets do, what they're called to do, and, and how prophetic uh, speech and ministry differs from other kinds of work of uh, uh, other officers in ancient Israel. So that'll be the first episode. Then we're going to plunge into the book of Jonah and spend several weeks going through the prophecy of Jonah, which will give us a, a taste for a, a prophetic book. It's a rather unusual prophetic book because, because so much of it is narrative, but we're going to use that as a kind of model to get us into, to ease us into the topic. And then we're going to spend uh, a good bit of time however long it takes us to get through the uh, book of Daniel. That'll be coming up after a few weeks in uh, the prophecy of Jonah. So for the next several months, we'll be uh, in prophetic books. We hope that uh, you enjoy this and, and learn something about prophecy. James B. John has promised at cert at some point that he is going to prophesy uh, on the <laughs> podcast. And so we're not going to tell you when that's coming, but it, it is coming. So you'll have to listen to every episode. Stay tuned. And uh, James will be... Uh, James will be delivering some prophecies for your edification. I want to start today by by raising the question um, by offering a definition of prophet. This is a something that we've been using around biblical horizons and now around Theopolis for many years. Uh, originally, I uh, I heard it from Jim, but Jim drew it from Abraham Heschel's book called The Prophets. Uh, and the argument uh, Heschel's argument and and our argument has been is that the prophet is fundamentally a member of the Lord's council. Prophets do foretell the future. They they predict things that are going to happen either in the near future or in the distant future. But a lot of prophetic ministry and a lot of prophetic speech is not prediction of the future, but other kinds of speech that are still categorized as prophecy. And the common characteristics is that these are oracles or statements delivered by a prophet who has access to the council of the Lord. 
and that's C O N, sorry, C O U N C I L, council. So the Lord meets in a council chamber which, with his holy ones. He's surrounded. We have several scenes in the Bible of this where he's surrounded by his holy ones, by angels, and he's deliberating. And the prophet is one who can enter into those deliberations, overhear those deliberations, and then uh, he's able to report on those. So that, that's been kind of the, the central definition we've used over the years. That's often surprising to people, I think, because most people think of prophets as delivery boys. Uh, they get messages from the mouth of the Lord and simply deliver it to people. But so often in the Bible, we see prophets interacting with God, even arguing with God. The first prophet mentioned in the Bible is Abraham in Genesis 20. And that's where Abraham um, goes down into the territory of Negev and meets Abimelech, who's something of a tyrant, and Abimelech takes his wife, Sarah, and eventually the Lord shows up and tells Abimelech, hey, give back this man's wife. He's a prophet, so he will pray for you and you shall live. So that that the aspect of interesting aspect of prophecy being that they are intercessors and have the Lord's ear, they're, they're advisors to him. Although that may be the first instance of the word, I think we have a good example of what the prophet can do a couple of chapters earlier, where Abraham intercedes for Sodom. And the Lord says that, um, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And so he declares to Abraham his purpose. And then Abraham reasons with the Lord, um, interceding on behalf of Sodom, that should there be even just 10 righteous people within it, it might be spared. That's the same kind of uh, prophetic ministry, or at least an aspect of the prophetic ministry that Moses carries out. Moses is the, the great model prophet. Uh, and of course, he's he's delivering the word of the Lord to the people. So he's a prophet in that sense. But he's also a prophet in the sense of being an, uh, one who intercedes, and particularly after the in the aftermath of the golden calf incident, uh, when the Lord threatens to abandon Israel and to start over with a new nation, with Moses at the head of that nation. And Moses, like Abraham before him, presents arguments to God. He doesn't just accept God's initial declaration that he's of what he's going to do. He, he pushes back, he argues back, and eventually the Lord relents and the Lord uh, determines to do what, what Moses has asked him to do. So that's, again, with, with Moses, kind of the paradigmatic prophet that uh, that gives us an idea that two-sidedness, he's both delivering the word of the Lord, but he's also bringing the needs and the uh, the concerns of the people uh, into the Lord's presence. If we are going to stress that intercessory aspect of prophetic post, it would make what happens to Jeremiah very atypical in that it comes to a point when he is told no longer intercede for this people. And that fits to some extent, as, as far as I can see, it, it does feel that as time goes on, there comes this point of inevitability to um, Jeremiah's prophecies, and he, he's no longer um, trying to garner repentance, but he's, he's just stating exactly what, what is going to happen. Might be something to pay attention to, the distinction between a prophet, as we can often think of it within our culture, as someone who just predicts in a very straightforward matter, manner what's going to happen in the future, and the prophet is someone delivering a covenantal word that has a promissory or warning character to it that calls for a response. And there's a certain sense of 
contingency. Um, should you respond in this particular way, this um, will befall you or will not befall you. And even a statement that seems to be categorical that this will happen, um, on occasions you'll find things do not actually take place because the Lord relents from a disaster that he has declared upon a city or even from a blessing that he has formally declared on account of their sinful rebellion. Classic passage here about what we're talking about is Amos 3 and Amos 7, where Yahweh God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets, so that the prophets have this special access to what God is going to do, and God shares with, it with them. But then also, and this is a dimension of prophecy I think that's important too, is a prophet is supposed to be assigned to Israel. They're supposed to be a uh, exemplary Israelite, a mature Israelite, so that when uh, God tells them what he would like to do, uh, he wants them to interact with him. And so in Amos 7, of course, we have this uh, famous scene where uh, God shows Amos what he's going to do. He forms locusts, and then um, there's three different things that the Lord is going to do. And each time Amos says, oh, Yahweh God, or, 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 oh, Master Yahweh, forgive. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. And so Yahweh relents concerning what he's going to do. But I do, I do think that the prophets are given to Israel to show how they are supposed to live in relationship to Yahweh. This interactive, personal interactive within God's covenant, they have a special status uh, and they ought to be engaging with the Lord about uh, various things that are going on in their nation, in their land, in their family, or whatever. Yeah, and I think that helps us to understand a bit of what Peter's talking about when he says at Pentecost that uh, the prophecy of Joel has been fulfilled, the Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. And he talks about a universal prophetic status for uh, the members of the church. And we, we hear that and we think, okay, maybe, maybe for a few years at the beginning of the, at the beginning of the church's history, you had a lot of people doing prophecy in the, in a, uh, in the sense of declaring the word of God, or you think uh, the spirit has been poured out so that people can witness, they can evangelize. But I think the point that you're making, that y'all are making is an important one that uh, the spirit is poured out partly so that we in the spirit can intercede. The spirit intercedes for us we intercede in the spirit, we groan, the spirit groans in us. That's all part of prophetic life before God. And I think it's it's really important. This goes back to some of the things we were saying in our previous series about imprecatory psalms. It's really important to recognize just how contentious some of these dialogues are and how seldom the prophets just kind of roll over and submit to whatever the Lord's initial declaration is. Uh, Abraham doesn't just accept the destruction of Sodom without uh, interceding for it. Moses doesn't accept the Lord's abandonment of Israel. He intercedes. Amos, uh, all the prophets are doing the same kind of thing. Sometimes they're interceding and calling on the Lord to go ahead and get get the judgment over with. I think there's an, that dimension. But there's this kind of there's kind of friction and this kind of uh, intensity to their uh, interactions with God that I think make, makes a lot of Christians uncomfortable. It seems like Jewish piety has much more of that kind of contentious flavor to it, but uh, Christian piety has been smoothed out, and uh, we don't have that kind of prophetic passion in our in our prayers often that uh, that the Bible models. With that, there seems to be a different relationship that the prophet bears to the word of the Lord than many other figures that we think about. The 
priest is someone who declares the law. Um, the king is someone who may speak with wisdom. But the prophet can embody the word of the Lord in a far more powerful sense. And the prophet can also express something of the authorization that the word gives. I think the great example of this would be in Jeremiah chapter 1 with Jeremiah's call, where he is granted the power to, um, the word of the Lord is placed upon his lips. And through that word, kingdoms will be um, plucked up and broken down, destroyed and overthrown, built and planted. Um, and that authority is something that the prophet expresses and also embodies in other ways. So the prophets serve as sign, signs to the people, whether that's the symbolic actions of Ezekiel or whether it's Jeremiah's the suffering prophet or whether it's the way in which um, Isaiah has given us a sign to the people or Hosea is someone who enacts the Lord's relationship with his wayward bride. In all of these figures, we're seeing a deeper embodiment, an incarnation of the word. And I think we also see that in the way that the prophets are installed into their ministry, often through uh, an act by which the Lord places his word upon their lips, almost in a physical way, or the, his word within them, like a scroll that has to be eaten in the book of Ezekiel, or like a fire within um, Jeremiah's bones, or the lips that are cleansed for Isaiah. Hmm. And, and they also embody something of God's program for his people, um, so that what you often see happening with a prophet is what's going to happen to the people. He becomes something of a prof. His life becomes something of a, of a prophetic warning. Um, it, that's true with Abraham. It's true with uh, it's true with Joseph. Joseph goes down in Egypt before his family does. It's true with Moses, of course. Moses goes into Midian and is exiled uh, before the people are are um, kicked out of Egypt. I mean, it's all through Jeremiah is uh, imprisoned and thrown into a pit, just as Israel is going to be thrown into the pit of Babylon. It's a big thing in Jonah, too, because what Jonah undergoes um, in the belly of the fish and also in the belly of the Assyrian fish, Nineveh, Ninevites, it, with the Ninevites, is what Israel is going to undergo. So there's this dimension, this, this, uh, uh, this lived out prophecy, if you will, um, in the in the life and the experiences of these prophets, Jeff, I'm going to go back to uh, highlight a note that you uh, comment that you made earlier. You, you mentioned something about uh, the messengers of the covenant. I don't remember exactly what phrase you used, but I think that's that's an important part of the background to prophetic ministry. That you have uh, the Lord enters into this relationship with Israel. He promises them certain blessings for their faithfulness in the covenant relation. He threatens that they'll be cursed if they they don't keep the covenant, uh, and you can pretty well match up those uh, those warnings and promises with what the prophets say is going to happen. I mean, when when Jeremiah talks in terms of Israel being you know the three the three horsemen of the apocalypse in Jeremiah, the sword, famine, and pestilence that are going to come, uh, those are the very things that the Lord warned about in. Uh, the covenant curse passages of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So the prophets are being inspired by the Spirit for their words, but that is that those inspired words are being drawn from the existing written 
text of the of the covenant document. So they're I don't want to naturalize it, but you could say that what they're doing is just applying what the Lord has threatened to the circumstances that they're in. They see they see Israel doing what the Lord warned them not to do, and so they predict sword, famine, and pestilence, which is just what the Lord said was going to happen. In some ways, uh, uh, some scholars have talked about prophets as kind of covenant prosecutors. They're bringing the indictment against Israel. Israel has failed to keep covenant, and so based on the arrangements of the covenant, the prophets are declaring the the charges uh, and declaring the sentence against Israel. I think one of the more remarkable examples of that is Elijah, who isn't just someone who's bringing some prediction of judgment, nor is he someone who's just a messenger boy. He's someone who precipitates the judgment in cutting off the rain in the drought, and he's calling upon the Lord and the sentence that he gives as one of the curses of the covenant upon the unfaithfulness of the people. And it comes upon the people just as Jericho has been rebuilt, that the drought is pronounced until his word comes again. Um, And it's through prayer that he enacts this. But the word of the Lord and the covenant sentence is seen as authorizing the prophet, not just something that he's sent to declare, but something that gives him authorization. And so he prays a sort of imprecatory prayer against Israel that the Lord would bring the judgment and the Lord grants him the authority to enact that judgment so that it will not be until he prays for them again that it's removed. So the prophets are also not merely bringing covenant lawsuit against uh, the people, against the Israelites, but in the flowering of prophecy um, in the kingdom period, there's a lot of uh, uh, prophetic words for the nations as well. Uh, And so that prophets uh, also can prosecute a certain case against the Ammonites or the Egyptians or even the Babylonians. It's based on a a little bit different standard, maybe the Noahic covenant kind of standard, Um, but that's still there. So we we have to also kind of come to grips with how it is during the kingdom period, especially the prophets now um, turn outward as well. And ha- there's a great deal about uh, judgment against the nations. And I, ha- I have to wonder, and I think this is accurate, you guys could probably add to it, that this is about uh, Israel's failure uh, in the midst of the nations to be the kind of example that she was called to be. That was her vocation. And now the name of God is blaspheme among the nations because of her. And so even though the prophets start with Jerusalem, start with Israel in their denunciation, all of them do. You see that in Jeremiah. Uh, They also then uh, branch out and deal with uh, and indict the nations as well. I think that captures something of the prophetic ministry more generally. They are an image of a true Israel within an unfaithful Israel. And in a condensed personal symbol, they hold within themselves the destiny and the identity of the people, even amidst this flood of unfaithfulness. So you see this in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, where a new Israel or seed of a remnant is being formed within this largely unfaithful nation. And at other points in Israel's history, you see the way that a new Israel is being gathered around a prophet or a prophetic community in its heart. I think the ministry of Jesus and his disciples will be another example of this. Maybe it follows on from what both Alistair and Jeff have said. If if we do pick up that idea of the 
prophet as the embodiment of his message. I find that hugely helpful in thinking about Jesus' own ministry. If, if we think of his message as, you know, first and foremost, that the kingdom of God is at hand and that at the same time uh, Jerusalem is, is due to go into judgment, then Jesus is, is so literally the embodiment of that message uh, in him and in his life and, and body that kingdom is at hand in the sense that the king is is present in the midst of Jerusalem and, and yet at the same time he will um, embody um, Jerusalem's judgment in the sense that he will go into exile and so much of the imagery which seems to surround the crucifixion uh, seems to be picked up from exilic um, prophecies, you know, prophecies about Israel being led away. Um, lots are cast over Jesus. His possessions are um, divvied up. There are dark skies. Um, his enemies gloat over him. All, all these are um, associated with Israel, Israel's exile and the nation's attitude towards her, um, and yet are embodied in the most literal way in Jesus' person uh, and prophetic ministry. I think the, the connection of prophecy with the monarchy that uh, a couple of you have alluded to is important. Uh, I mean, we've got prophets before Israel has a king. You have Abraham, as we've already discussed, and Moses. Uh, but you prophecy really comes into its own and becomes a kind of permanent institution within Israel during the time of the kings. And the prophets are often directly interacting with kings. Uh, Samuel, of course, dealing with both Saul and David. Elijah and Elisha dealing with the, the house of Ahab and the, the aftermath of the house of Ahab in the northern kingdom. And then the writing prophets, uh, you have within within the uh, major prophets, you have frequent scenes where the prophet is declaring something to a particular king. So that political dimension of prophecy is is significant. Um, when we uh, at Theopolis, uh, we learned from Jim Jordan to think of the sequence of the Old Testament being a movement from priest to king to prophet. The high priest is the preeminent figure in the Mosaic era, and then the king is the preeminent figure in the Davidic era, and then prophets become the preeminent figures in the exilic and post-exilic period. And uh, that that sequence is there, but I think it, it's also important to see the overlap that's happening, and prophecy emerges within the kingdom, and it has this political, this political dimension to it, which also means that prophecy can be perverted. I mean, it can become it's designed to be God's mouthpiece and voice to the king to call the king to account. Uh, but it can become, uh, you know, the prophet can become a court prophet and the prophet can become uh, a, an endorser of, of whatever desires the king has. Ahab, of course, with his hundreds of court prophets who just uh, mimic and endorse whatever, whatever policy, uh, whatever war he wants to go fight. Um, at the same time, the institutionalization of prophecy is part of the maturation of the kingdom because you have a king who has a divine accountability that's kind of built into the system. And there's something about the prophet that represents the potential of Israel's identity going forth after the kingdom as the kingdom of Israel and then later the kingdom of Judah fall to the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. Israel's identity does not cease and it's particularly in the figures of the prophets that that identity is carried forward, the memory of what it is to be Israel, the covenant um, memory that is constantly recalled, and Israel in that memory being recalled to its true self. And that prophetic ministry 
is then expressed in the diaspora of Israel among the nations as they're scattered abroad. There will be figures like um, Daniel in the court of Babylonian and Medo-Persian emperors who is able to bring the word and the covenant judgments of the Lord into contexts they would never formally have arrived at. We already have inclinations of, of a movement in that direction in people coming to Elijah and Elisha um, or Elijah and Elisha's work in anointing Haziel, king of Syria, the um, name of the Syrian coming to Elisha, other figures like that, that the nations are being drawn into the orbit of the word of the Lord and the word of the Lord is going out on the seas of the nations. And I think the book of Jonah is perhaps the great example of this, but it's part of a larger movement within redemptive history that leads to the period in the early church where the majority of the Jews are actually living outside of the land and the word of the Lord has a considerable presence outside of the borders of the land of Judea. One of the ways I like to describe prophetic ministry to my students in connection with priests and uh, priestly and, and royal ministry uh, is in, in terms of their relationship to the sanctuary. Um, I mean, priests we know are the administrators and they're the ones who run the sanctuary. They're the ones who keep the rituals of worship going. Kings in the Bible are typically sanctuary builders. Uh, they're the architects of sanctuaries. Solomon, of course, builds the first temple and then his... Uh, his successors are the ones who are charged with maintaining it in its physical form and making sure that it keeps that the uh, priesthood is supplied. Uh, but prophets also has a ro have a role in the sanctuary, and their role is more of a sacred architect. So Moses is acting as a prophet when he receives the pattern of the tabernacle, and he delivers it. Moses is playing a, a dual role here because he's both the one who receives the the pattern and also is the one who constructs the tabernacle. David is the is functioning as a prophet when he receives the pattern, which he passes on to Solomon, the king, his successor, in order to build the temple. After the exile, we have the uh, the sacred the main sacred architect is, is Ezekiel. In the last uh, eight or nine chapters of his prophecy, he's seeing a vision of a great temple that's uh, setting a pattern for what Israel is supposed to rebuild in the land when they return after exile. Uh, John plays this role at the end of Revelation when he's up on a high mountain. And he sees the pattern of the New Jerusalem, and then he's delivering that to us. And among other things, I think that vision of New Jerusalem is a is a kind of set of blueprints for what the the church and the world are supposed to be, uh, what we're aspire to, and what we're to to try to build uh, in the church and the world. So the, the prophet has this kind of architectural role, which he passes on to the king, and then the king turns over the regular maintenance of the house to priests, and then prophets come in and. Uh, course corrections, uh, rebuking kings for not maintaining the house. Uh, and then the kings uh, put the house back together and and the priests uh, start up their ritual again. So you have that kind of interrelationship between the these different roles. Peter, that also helps us understand the prophetic portion of the book of Acts, beginning with chapter uh, 15, where Paul, in an Ezekiel kind of way, goes out and um, gives the pattern for this new temple, this new Jerusalem, which of course extends to the Gentiles now. It's the tent of David that it has been, uh, where the stakes have been pulled out and now cover you know, the entire world, the oikumene. So Paul is out there giving the architectural layout for the way 
this uh, new sanctuary is to be built. And then he hands it over, of course, to uh, those who reign with Christ, his saints, who are united with him and, and reign from heaven. Uh, and then he has to come in now and then with his letters and make course corrections, as you said. You know, hey, you're, you're not really building this according to specs. Um, you need to work on this or that. Uh, that makes a lot of sense with regard to Paul's uh, specific vocation um, as a master builder, as he says in 1 Corinthians 3. One thing I'd be interested to hear people's thoughts upon are the differences between various kinds of prophets. So in Numbers chapter 12, we're told, um, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. And there are a number of different examples of prophets or prophet-like figures in Scripture. There is the pagan practice of divining. There are seers. There are people who have dreams and visions. And then there are people who have the word of the Lord pronounced very directly to them. And there are some prophets also who are writing prophets. And it seems to me that it can be helpful to distinguish between them and also between prophets like Moses, um, David to an extent, and other figures who are at the foundation of particular covenant orders. Um, they're founding prophets. Moses is the one who receives the word of the Lord that provides the foundation for the whole Mosaic order. I mean, one possibility, Alistair, is that we have something like uh, a sequence, uh, a uh, some kind of maturation. You do seem to have a sequence when you're talking about the difference between seers and prophets. That terminology is clustered, at least. I'd have to look at the specifics, but a seer is clustered earlier in the Old Testament, and then prophet becomes the dominant term later. So there se seems to be some kind of... Uh, in Samuel, there's even a reference. Uh, those who are not called prophets were once called seers. So there's a, there's a recognition that there's a shift in the terminology. And I also think, I wonder if there's something similar going on with the difference between the kind of prophets we have in uh, the historical books, Samuel and uh, Elijah and Elisha and a few others who are mainly dealing with kings, but so far as we know, don't write anything. And then the the writing prophets that we know of in the, the uh, major prophetic books and the 12 minor prophets. So you do seem to have some kind of movement from early to late. I don't, that doesn't... Uh, tell what kind of movement it is, but there's a, there does seem to be a, a development going on. It's not simply these different sort of prophets are not simply scattered around different parts of the Old Testament. It seems like there's a, they cluster together or there's a sequence going on. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought before that there is just this big, uh, I mean, I would guess that Hosea and Amos would be among the earlier writing prophets who might be maybe 8th century or, or perhaps slightly earlier. But then you, you've got a lot of people before them, haven't you? So Nathan um, uh, and Elijah and Elisha, I guess, um, uh, who, who are not writing and, and prophetic messages in the book of Judge, Judges. Um, so there is that long period of no written prophecy. Jeremiah chapter 36, Jeremiah is instructed to dictate all the prophecies that he's delivered to that point to Baruch, who has to write them down and then read them in the temple on a fast day. And then that word gradually finds itself 
um, brought towards the king, Jehoiakim, who ends up destroying the scroll, and then another one is written. But that act of writing the scroll is a discrete act. It's not just um, something that follows on naturally from speaking these things. It's the specific instruction of the Lord that these prophecies need to be written down and that that book should provide a testimony to the king and the people of Judah. It seems that the book itself becomes a prophetic actor in its own part. It's not just uh, reported from the sidelines. One of the thoughts I'm having is that, uh, I mean, you do have clusters of writing at different times throughout the Old Testament. Um, there's a mosaic cluster of books, and then there seems to be some period of time before there's another cluster of books toward the end of the period of the judges, the beginning of the kings, another cluster of books toward the end of the monarchy and the beginning of the, the exilic and into the, into the uh, restoration era. So I wonder if the, the, the presence of writing prophets uh, emerges kind of at, at the foundation of that new covenantal era. So the writing prophets, in use Alistair's earlier terms, are, are uh, functioning as kind of founding prophets. And at that stage, things are recorded in the same way that the Mosaic documents are written down, in the same way that uh, the history of the founding of the Davidic dynasty is written down. And maybe, maybe something to the, the writing prophets as, as founding a new covenant arrangement. There does seem to be something of that. Um, as Jeremiah writes down his book, and then it's destroyed by the king, and another one is created, it seems quite reminiscent of the story of chapter 32 of Exodus, with the breaking of the first tablets of stone, and then another set being formed in chapter 34. Mm, yeah, good. That would then, to some extent, parallel the New Testament situation, insofar as we have John the Baptist and Jesus not putting anything in writing. And as far as I can tell, epistles not emerging for a, for a long time. Um, but then much later in New Testament history, the um, uh, uh, what has previously been preached then being committed to the written form. Hmm. And another, uh, uh, I suppose, related question that I wanted to raise, and that is the a lot of modern theology has traded on the contrast between priestly and prophetic. The priest is a a functionary who follows the uh, follows the prescribed rituals. He's a ritualist, and priests are kind of the bureaucrat, the liturgical bureaucrats. And prophets are, you know, the 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 freedom of the spirit. They express the freedom of the spirit, and there's a uh, their 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 authority is based on. Uh, the gift of the spirit and a kind of personal charisma and uh, rather than an institutional kind of authority. And I think that that's, uh, you find that in sociology of religions. I mean, that, that what I was just describing is kind of a, a Weberian construct about the difference between regularized authority and charismatic authority. Uh, you find it in Old Testament studies, you find it in uh, biblical studies more generally. But I, I think that's really a, that's really is a distortion because it, it does seem to me that the a uh, prophetic movement emerges out of priestly uh, sources. That doesn't mean every single prophet is a priest or a Levite. Many of them are, though. And I think that the a prophecy is a is a new phase or a new a new form of priestly vocation, in a sense, because the priests are called to be the teachers. They're the ones who are supposed to make sure that the the king reads the Torah in Deuteronomy 17. It's supposed to do it in the presence of the Levitical priests. So there's the ones that are they're the ones that are the voice of God to the king, and then the prophets emerge as a fresh form of that uh, that priestly role. And then uh, uh, in terms of personnel, um, 
Samuel is has a Levitical uh, genealogy in First First Chronicles. Jeremiah is a descendant of priests. Ezekiel is uh, a priest. I'm I suspect that Isaiah is a priest. Um, and so the the idea that you have this stark contrast between two different uh, two different forms of ministry, I think, is uh, is misleading. Yeah, and the prophets are not proclaiming some sort of freedom from the law or some sort of new authority. Their authority comes from their application, their understanding of an application of the Torah, the law of God. Uh, as we've said earlier, they're bringing covenant lawsuit, and it's based in the warnings of Deuteronomy 27 and 28 or the Song of Moses or something like that. It's it's never just something that they've come up with on their own freely. Uh, they're making uh, application of it to specific circumstances and situations, of course, uh, but they're not in in any way that I see in opposition to the priestly ministry. Uh, in, in fact, so you take someone like Malachi. Malachi is actually trying to uh, uh, uphold and bolster uh, the priestly ministry in, um, in in showing how the Israelites have have failed, how the, how the priests have failed to live up to their own charge, their own vocation, uh, and the people uh, as well. One could perhaps see the prophets at certain points as preparing for a sort of Levitizing, uh, Levitizing of the nation as a whole. The Levites are scattered among Israel, um, bearing witness to the law, serving as exemplars and teachers, as those who represent um, a force pulling Israel into the sanctuary. Um, and Israel is going to be that among the nations, and the prophets are preparing them for that particular ministry. So there is a relationship to the life of the temple, but there's also a sense in which meaning that would have been associated with the temple in certain theological frameworks is increasingly being vested in the people. And that shift, I think, is one that we're seeing in the later prophets particularly. Yeah, I was going to suggest something similar. I wonder if you could even see that over time, the uh, ministry of the prof prophets gets sub subsumed within the priesthood and becomes more regularized in, in that sense. People like Hosea and um, Joel and Amos, we seem to know comparatively little about and particularly about their um, ancestry and, and background. Um, they're, they're largely kind of loan agents to some extent. And then uh, later on, people who we do know more about, like Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel, um, they, they are the priests. Um, and so I wonder if there is that progression over time. I want to raise a, a question of uh, hermeneutics of prophetic texts. Uh, this is a complex question that I uh, just want to get some general thoughts on. There, there are places in the prophets that are cited by the New Testament as fulfill, being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. You know, Isaiah speaks of a, of a virgin who will conceive and bear a son. But you look at Isaiah 7, and, you know, it's, a, it's an oracle given to Ahaz in a very specific circumstance. And so the question is, what meaning, if any, does that have for Ahaz and the contemporaries of Isaiah? Is there some kind of, we should, should we assume at least as a rule of thumb, that there's some kind of near fulfillment, that it's relevant to the people who receive it initially, even if there's a fuller realization of the prophecy at some point in the distant future with the coming of Christ. Is that is that kind of double fulfillment idea typical? Is it rare? Is it, uh, what's the, what, what are your thoughts on that? 
the promissory aspects of prophecy and scripture more generally, I think, are seldom fully realized initially. And we can see this even in the entrance into the promise of the land. Israel does not fully enter into the possession of the land that is promised to them until the reign of Solomon. And even there, it's only short-lived. Um, that promise is held out as something that they can enter into if they enter into it by faith, but which they fall short of in various ways. At other points, I think it seems that the prophets, something similar is going on with prophecies, that Israel can enter into some partial realization of them. Um, on other occasions, it's not so much the faith as uh, distinct stages in which a promise is brought to fulfillment. So in Jeremiah's prophecy of a new covenant, it initially has fulfillment in the return from the exile, re-establishment in the land. But clearly, some sort of exile continues in the understanding of Nehemiah, for instance. It seems that the exile has not completely ended. They're still not in full possession of self-rule. There's a sense in which they're still slaves to this day. And the challenge, I think, is retaining the integrity of the initial referent while also recognizing that there's something more that it's looking forward to. And we find that on several occasions, even within the Old Testament, but particularly as we relate the Old Testament to the New, we see that the New Testament is projecting something beyond the initial fulfillment as a true um, import of the word of the prophet. And there I think the fact that these things are written down is important. Um, if these things were just delivered to a very specific context and narrowly terminating upon that context, I don't think the writing of Scripture would have the true testamentary force that it's supposed to have. I think Brother Charles makes a good point when he argues that there's a certain degree of decontextualization that occurs in the fact of writing these things down and placing them within the canon. The words are supposed to echo and re-echo into new situations as there's a promissory force that exceeds its original context. So, Alistair, that would be um, going along with Peter's suggestion, would it, that by default we're thinking of these uh, messages as having an initial and uh, immediate relevance, but also um, a longer-term fulfilment? Yes, very much so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would personally be happy even with sort of three or four um, uh, applications of a prophecy. Um, one example might be Joel. Um, it seems very much to me that Joel kind of blends his images of a locust invasion and armies. And so you're not sure if he's likening a swarm of locusts to an army or likening uh, a later army to a swarm of locusts. And that sort of Blending goes in, in insofar as the army is sort of driven into the sea by the wind, which you would expect of, of locusts rather than uh, an, an army. I would be very happy to think that there was an initial application which had to do first and foremost with agriculture and locusts and then an application perhaps in the days of uh, the Babylonians and the um, on the, the sort of swarming of, of those towards um, Jerusalem, uh, one in Peter's day, um, later still. And uh, obviously there's a, um, an application in Revelation, which will depend where you put that uh, time frame wise. But it, it seems that you, you can have this very cyclic application of a, a lot of prophecies. 
and it would also be a looking back to the ninth to the eighth plague and seeing some anticipation of a new exodus type event happening in the future which again shows that that initial event uh, which fulfills various promises of the lord is only partial fulfillment of the lord's intent that he would deliver his people from slavery and establish them in a new rest yeah that's really helpful alistair because that that gets away from what can seem like an arbitrary and wooden kind of double fulfillment idea. You're you're making the case that it's actually kind of inherent in the way that in the way that God's history works, that it uh, it unfolds in stages and it's not all exhausted in one moment. So that it's not it's not surprising given the, given just the the structure of the way God has designed redemptive history. It's not surprising that that uh, prophetic texts would have this kind of fullness and richness. I also really like the your comment about the. Uh, the effect of uh, a written text, which opens up its the possibility of uh, it becomes it becomes portable, uh, not just physically portable, but portable to different uh, situations, and it's being read in different situations and and different dimensions of it are being highlighted and noticed because they're being read with against the background of certain crises and uh, dilemmas and and achievements and so on. So I think that, and that might be part of the answer to the question that we raised earlier about the the differences between different sorts of prophecies. So that might be a sign of the maturation of prophecy, that it's not simply Elijah speaking to Ahab and having a prophecy directly for him in his very specific circumstances that we never hear, we never, we never have recorded for us. But then Isaiah prophesies to Ahaz, we have it recorded for us, and that uh, becomes a, a permanent fixture of the of Israel's life and then the church's life and gives it this kind of you know cascading resonance is this it's at the center of a of a series series of applications series of echoes that goes on until the end so uh, that's that's really helpful thanks when people ask me about that um, I have a pretty simple response that requires them to think a little bit obviously and that is that they should remember the typological nature of uh, the history of Israel so that you can have a David and a greater David you can have prophets, but you can have the prophet, Jesus. Uh, the, the, the big example of this for me is um, the servant in the Isaiah passages in Isaiah 40 and, and onward. Well, who is that servant? Well, that servant, of course, is Israel. But it also becomes Cyrus explicitly, I think, in Isaiah 44 and 45 or some one of those. Uh, but then, of course, it's Jesus because um, Jesus is... Um, Israel reduced to one, and Jesus is, you know, the new world emperor, if you will. So uh, once you kind of see that progression of how the servant is is uh, being fulfilled in Israel, in uh, Cyrus, uh, and also in the anointed, the final anointed one, not just Cyrus, who is the Lord's anointed, but Jesus, then maybe you, you get a feel for the fact that, that there's a progression, there's a progressive fulfillment because of the typology, the typological nature of Israel and the history before Jesus. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.